cannabis, used for healing, spiritual practice, and social facilitation for centuries. Historical records showed this plant growing alongside humans since 500 BC. But the early 1900s started a wave of cannabis prohibition that led to growers needing to go underground. Cannabis is now re-emerging under a capitalist model, and with this regulatory acquisition comes both harsh realities and unique opportunities of a financial boom on the horizon. Today's guest, Allison Gordon, is on the front lines of this expansion as CEO of 48 North, a publicly traded licensed producer of cannabis in Ontario, Canada. I think the one thing that people have to understand is this is a capital intensive industry for a variety of reasons, including that the regulatory environment isn't set. So you could spend a lot of money on something and then it turns out that that's not going to meet regulation and you need to rebuild it. I'm Colleen King. I'm Carolyn Kissick. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress, where we go inside the international cannabis market, a global stage predicted to have nearly $70 billion in sales by the year 2025. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. Well, this this is the best week. Why is it your favorite week? It's Cannabis Week. Yes. Cannabis Week. We're talking to somebody from the cannabis industry in Canada today. People all around the world are working at this at the same time. At least in our lives, you know, Canada's kind of always this mothership that's moving ahead of us market-wise. And so we thought it'd be an interesting perspective to see what's really going on there. What what do you think about that, Colleen? When I first knew that I wanted to be in the cannabis industry, I was living in California and I had a few people tell me, if you're really serious about becoming a business person in cannabis, you should move to Canada right now. And that was maybe seven years ago. And I didn't really understand because I was like, what? I live in California. Like, we have the best cannabis in the whole world. But they said, if you want to learn business, that's where you need to go. And that's what's so cool about this interview is that we get to hear the real, like, business side of can- of cannabis in Canada because they are ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, outside of Canada... There's many, many other countries that are moving forward on this. You just don't hear about them in the regular media. You kind of have to seek them out a little bit. You keep a really good pulse on this, especially because of your work with coffee. So what else are you seeing going on out there? Yeah, I mean, it looks like Thailand is going to be a big player or has potential to be a big player. Um, Colombia, people are looking to Mexico. They have a lot of potential. I mean, Spain has... Spanabist, right? It's this giant conference in Barcelona. And so, you know, they're really gearing up to be on the global stage. Yeah, for sure. Lulu and I are going to try and go to Spanabist this next year. You want to come? I would love to. I actually met somebody in the passport office who was going to Spanabist. I needed some money because I didn't realize it was cash only. And he, he <laughs> lent me some money. We realized we were both in cannabis. And then he was actually on my plane. No way. Yeah, I wasn't going to Spain. I was going to Oslo. But um. oh, my God. Shout out to Paul. He's been a really good mentor, actually. (laughs) So funny plane story about cannabis. I was flying out of Denver one year, and there was this older woman who was sitting next to me, and she asked me, you know, why why were you in Colorado, blah, blah, blah. And I told her I was going there to meet with some cannabis people and write a little bit about it. And she goes, oh, did you bring any on the plane with you? And I said, no, that's very you know that's illegal still and whatever and she pulls no joke like a 
like a bag of of cannabis cookies out of her shirt, <laughs> like out of her shirt. And I was like, whoa, you just went through security with that? She's like, I'm an old lady. They never search me. <laughs> I was like, what? And then she was just like munching on these like edibles. <laughs> they were lemon drop cookies. I remember this vividly. I was just like, it, cannabis is a funny world. In addition to it being very challenging, being a business owner in it, you run into so many problems like cash, which I want to talk to you about because I know we've just both been going through this, you know, kind of banking problems. Yeah. But why did I go from restaurants to cannabis? <laughs> it's like, oh, and now I'm starting a company. So like, let's just make my life as difficult as possible. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know about the struggles of cannabis. I think people look at it as this like cash crop and how you can make so much money. And some states are doing that. And there's definitely a big money happening in, in multiple states and, and internationally, which we'll hear about. But, you know, one thing about cannabis in the United States is we can't do interstate commerce. And we also can't use any form of credit card processing or anything like that because we trade with a federal dollar even though but it's federally illegal so state-wise if we had a california dollar for example it probably probably be a lot easier but because we use a federal dollar to trade i mean people bury their money there's a lot of cannabis industry folks up in the areas that were affected by the fire especially in santa rosa and i know people that lost their house and a ton of cash i mean seven figures of cash because they had it in safes or buried in the ground because they can't put their money in the bank. And, you know, you can't insure that money if it's not in a bank. So if it just turns to dust, it turns to dust. So you have two problems, right? You have this insurance industry problem and a banking industry problem that are major, major issues for any business. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Have you had a bank account shut down? I have had a bank account shut down and you were just dealing with that, right? Yeah. I've had a few shut down. It's amazing. It can be humiliating, but you also kind of know that it's a possibility walking in. It's just, I'm really, really ready for federal legalization for so many reasons, but really they just need to push through a banking bill is what it comes down to. So you mentioned interstate commerce, and this is something that Allison and I chat about in the interview, is because Canada has legalized this at a federal level, that allows the states to trade with each other. What's happening in the United States, because we don't have federal legalization, is the states are legalizing between each other, but the way interstate commerce works involves the government. So, and so interstate commerce is anytime one state does business with another state. And so you can't just grow cannabis in Colorado because it's legal and sell it to another state where it's legal because you can't put it into the interstate commerce system because that's federally regulated. It can't go into a federal system. And so it prevents that whole line of transaction. It's pretty wild. I mean, I was speaking to a farmer from Oregon and she was saying that they have years worth of product that they're sitting on because they can't sell it to other states. And they have so many producers, so many growers that they're really primed for export, but they can't sell it to anyone else. So they're having a lot of trouble. And, you know, like everything, cannabis is perishable. So it's it's pretty, I mean, we're going through some growing pains for sure. But thinking about Canada being able to just 
legalize everything all at once, they can do business with each other. They sort of eliminate all of these issues that the United States just really doesn't have the foresight to, to deal with right now. Yeah. So it's so fun to have a whole week with multiple interviews because we met in cannabis and cannabis is such a big part of our life. So this was really great. And I'm so happy we have an international perspective to start us off. It's so funny that we like knew each other. We like met each other so many years ago and then just now we're doing a podcast together. <laughs> you never know where cannabis will bring you. So anyways, what's up to everybody in the California cannabis market? You guys are doing a good job. Keep it up. Yeah. Let's get into the interview. Here we go. Allison, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's always really fascinating to hear people's backgrounds that brought them into the cannabis world. And one of the things that makes yours so interesting is that you spent a brief amount of time in the California industry some years back before returning to the Canada market full time. Sure. So, I mean, my background is marketing and branding. I had co-founded an organization in Canada called Rethink Breast Cancer in 2001. And we built that into a national organization that was focused on young women with breast cancer. We felt back then that there was really nothing for young women, both on the support side, but also for those young women who had mothers and aunts who were going through breast cancer that wanted to be able to support the cause in a way that made sense to them. And we built that organization from the ground up and I was very happy there. Um, but as a long time cannabis user, I'd been watching what was happening in the US and back in 2008, I started thinking like, you know what, this organization is growing and thriving and would survive just fine without me. And maybe I wanted to make a move into the cannabis space. And what sort of brought my attention to that was that I had a close family member uh, diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. She'd never used cannabis before, but her doctor recommended she tried uh, medical cannabis. And I actually had no idea in 2008 that Canada had a medical cannabis program and was like, what? What? Oh my God, what do you mean? Oh my God, I'm going to open stores. It's going to be branded. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. Uh, very naive. And I just started studying the industry. And in 2013, I decided, you know what? I wanted to make the leap. And I did. And I joined the industry back then in Canada, which was very early. What are some of your memories from back then in the California market? Do you see any of those trends continuing today with consumers? Well, I mean, when we first purchased the dispensary in Los Angeles, everything was homemade. So the bud tenders would just make cookies or lemon squares and they were just wrapped in cellophane with a sticker. And then over, you know, pretty quickly, companies like Kiva and Venice Beach Cookie Company came in with branded dosed products that, you know, were in nice packaging and that evolution has just really continued. Obviously, there's a variety of different trends that, um, you know, come in and out, whether it's, you know, large format people want now short, like people want small format, like all that is, is, you know, has to level out as people get excited about these, all these new products. And at some point it's not going to be super exciting to go to your dispensary any more than it is to pick up, you know, the wine or whatever it is. Although obviously cannabis will touch people in so many more ways than just the recreational market, as you said, health and wellness and where cannabinoids show up as enriched products, but just sort of leaving that aside from the adult use market, 
um, you know, I think it's evolved exactly as I thought it would, which is as a consumer packaged good industry. So the goal is, can people scale their product? Can it be like an Oreo where every time you open the box, it looks and feels and smells and tastes exactly the same. That's the expectation that consumers have um, and make you feel the same way every time. And so that's an industry challenge on consistency and scale. And, you know, that's, that's all, you know, interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah, it will definitely be interesting. Canada officially legalized the recreational market in October of 2018. Tell me the changes that you experienced uh, as a company and also as an industry, what kind of impact this had on consumers as well as patients. For 48 North, we received our sales license in June, just before legalization. So it wasn't a big impact for us. We knew legalization was coming in October. And so we were focused towards that goal. But for the industry as a whole, it was completely different. Under the medical system, patients would go to a doctor, get a prescription, uh, park that prescription with a licensed producer like 48 North, and then order online was the only way that you could do it. And then it got sent through the mail or courier to them specifically. So that was the only way under medical to receive your medicine. Obviously, now under the recreational market or the adult use market, there are, you know, retail, there is online. It's it's a much larger access. You obviously don't need a prescription. So things have changed significantly with regards to how people can access cannabis. Right. So here in the U.S., though, the state's have been kind of left to themselves to regulate and decide on laws around cannabis and without getting too complicated, mostly without federal intervention. But the states can't interact in cannabis businesses across state lines at this point. But Canada handles this differently, correct? The federal government is the overarching regulator in your case, and business between states is allowed. Well, it is. So we are licensed, 48 North is licensed by our federal government. That's who governs our licensing. And we can sell in any province from our facilities in Ontario. We can ship to British Columbia. So there's not like the US where you can't cross state lines. But what the federal government did was they gave um, the distribution and retail to the individual provinces to figure out how they wanted to run that. So province to province, you have different retail structures and distribution structures, but we can supply into all of them if we're able to secure those contracts. It's just that some of the provinces have done private retail. So, you know, you can get a license if you meet their criteria and others, the government is running retail like the way it is in Ontario with alcohol. So in Ontario, which is our, you know, one of our largest provinces, Toronto is in Ontario. We can only really buy alcohol at a store called the LCBO, which is run by the government. In the last year or so, they've started to allow for some beer to be sold at supermarkets, but that's the way it's been. But for cannabis in Ontario, it's actually private retail, which is interesting. So it's all very uh, complex. Yeah, complexity seems to be a common theme that everybody's keeping in their cannabis regulations so far. 
forgive me if I'm reading these incorrectly. As you said, they're complex, but it looks like 48 North as a company is fully vertically integrated, but that in Ontario, you can't actually handle the distribution piece of the supply chain. I mean, it's two sort of different things that you're speaking about. Our license gives us the right to cultivate, extract, manufacture, sell cannabis and cannabis products. If one of the provinces were to say you could also own retail, which they do, we could also choose to own retail. So it's not that the province itself necessarily runs distribution or retail. It's that they have created the regulation around distribution and retail. So it's really on a province by province basis, whether or not A, they allow for private retail, so not government-run retail. B, whether or not they allow licensed producers to also own retail or what percentage of retail they can own. So that's just, you know, with regards to whether or not we could be completely vertically integrated and have stores. Um, It would vary from province to province if we so chose to have stores. Gotcha. So I'm just going to take a second here and explain really quickly what vertical integration really is because it gets thrown around in media and pitches and investment world pretty often, especially out in California. And I think there's a lot of people in the dark about what this really means if you haven't worked in the industry. So in cannabis regulations, generally, specifically in California, but in most states uh, that are allowing for legalization, there are different licenses attached to different stages in cannabis processing. If you are a fully vertically integrated company, that means you own a license in that entire vertical stack. And there are exceptions, again, in California, where you can own every license except for a laboratory license that does the testing. But in Canada, it seems like you're almost required to be vertically integrated versus incentivized to be so for a strong position in the market. Vertical integration in Canada has been necessary because of the fact that the licensing up until October 17th of 2018 was started with you had to cultivate, then you got, you know, your cultivation license, and then you could get your sales license, then you could get your extraction license. There really wasn't ways to be focused on certain aspects of the vertical, which I think was problematic because vertical integration is not always a good thing. You know, some people are very good at retail and people are good at other things. So vertical integration is a bit necessary to date in Canada, but I do see things changing and that is a good thing for sure. So tell us about the facilities that 48 North has as a company. We have two indoor facilities that we're cultivating and we have now transitioned one of those to be the post-harvest facility for the massive amounts of cannabis that will come off the farm during the harvest. So we have an indoor facility in Northern Ontario, very much focused on premium flower and then our outdoor is really one of the first in Canada and it's 88 acres of organic cannabis which is awesome we're in the process of organic certification the farm we purchased was already two seasons into that certification so we just need a third this one under our belt and then we should be certified and then our facility is about 10 minutes from there where we will be able to process and manufacture and package the products And what was the impetus behind going organic with your 
cannabis farm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's no different than the choices people make around food. I mean, some people could care less about organic, but the statistics show us that organic is the fastest growing category in food. And I think it's because people are worried about what's being sprayed on their food. And it's really no different than cannabis. It's if you're smoking it or eating it, I mean, you're taking in those pesticides. And I think there's a large segment of the consumer and that segment is growing significantly who, if given the choice, would prefer not to have chemicals in any of their products, right? So I think organic is hugely important. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you on all of that, but you brought up a good point. Um, There's people that don't care about this at all. And in my experience in the industry, we're seeing a lot of isolates, distillates, breeding, where we all mostly believe in a full spectrum or a whole plant product. But is it unrealistic that everything will fit that mold, even though that's what we believe is the best for humans when they're consuming cannabis products? There are people who buy Absolute Vodka and there are people who buy Grey Goose Vodka. Obviously, in my opinion, a whole plant or full spectrum product is is ideal, you know, where possible. And in some instances, it doesn't even necessarily make sense. But I do believe that you'll have specialty products or higher end products that will use different methods. And then you'll have, you know, basic distillate products that are in edibles or whatever it might be, but they will be cost efficient. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to say. I heard a stat from my friend and I don't remember, but it was ridiculously high that like, you know, something like 80 something percent of Americans are $200 away from meeting their monthly bills. So it's not as though the whole world can just choose like, oh, I'm going to buy, you know, super pricey, full spectrum CBD face oil, <laughs> right? Like there is a level at which people buy Budweiser and they buy, um, I don't even know beers, I don't drink, but, you know, I know our kids, I don't know about beers, but, you know, the, the, I think if you look at market share, I'm sure those low cost, high alcohol beers, um, outsell everything else in the market so i believe you will see that too so it's really just a question of variety and consumer and brand and all that jazz or certain products will be small exclusive um not scalable and other things that use a distillate will be scalable like it's it's you know sort of Again, I hate using the alcohol analogy because I don't actually see the comparables. It's just easy for people to wrap their head around. Of course, there are small batch, you know, whiskeys that are made and I don't even know how, but, you know, 50 years sitting in barrels or whatever they do. And there are, you know, mass market things. So I think, you know, you, you still need scale, but it, it, that what that scale is will depend on who your target is, your audience, your product, all of that stuff. Right. And pricing wise, we're already starting to see some really interesting, sometimes shocking numbers in terms of the price of cannabis. It's bottoming out in some markets, Oregon, for instance. So in your August 2019 investor deck, you listed these numbers, 25 cents a gram on outdoor, $2 a gram on indoor, and 90 cents per gram on greenhouse. Are those numbers still accurate? Yeah, I mean, we're aiming for that 25 cent mark and in and around, but those other numbers are, you know, based on uh, groups like Deloitte that have 
said on average in Canada, people are growing at $2 a gram indoor, 90 cents a gram greenhouse. So again, I think for us, it's you want to obviously have the lowest cost at the highest quality. So it's not like we've invented that game, but um, outdoor is definitely the way to achieve that. We're talking cultivation costs here, not necessarily what it's going to be sold into the marketplace at. Yeah, I think grams are still 10 to $15 uh, in a dispensary in California, but still those numbers seem really low to me. And commoditization is one of those words that gets thrown around in cannabis a lot. Again, especially in investment circles, especially in the growing community. Do you see that happening for cannabis in Canada? I don't know the actual technical definition of commodity, but I, I mean, a commodity is priced by a market and supply and demand, like versus a brand, right? Which is, there's a defendable moat around a brand, right? It is your brand. It's it's the things that make it that particular thing special and unique. And even if that's just the name or the association people feel with the brand, a commodity is, is something that trades based on the supply and demand of the market. And if there's an oversupply, then a commodity obviously trades at a much lower price than if there's an undersupply because it's just the basics of economics. So the thing about anything that you grow like potatoes or, uh, tomatoes or whatever it is, if there's more people growing it than there are people buying it, the price goes down. And so in cannabis, in, for example, Oregon, it's, you know, become a commodity in the sense that there's way more growers than there are buyers. So the price is rock bottom. And I think all of us recognize this is where the industry will go. I don't think it's ever going to be a free-for-all so you would have ridiculous amounts of it being grown but it's it's definitely the emphasis for 48 north is on the types of products and the brands that we put that ingredient into are where you're going to be able to differentiate yourself as opposed to just a product at the raw level of a flower or you know a cannabinoid okay and in addition to more being grown at lower costs. We're also seeing major players that are entering the market right now. Uh, in your last round, Canopy Growth put in $3 million. Uh, they are also said to be investing about $150 million in Binghamton, New York for hemp growth and processing. And they're of course now almost 40% owned by Constellation Brands, which is a beverage portfolio here in the States. And internally in the cannabis industry, there's usually a lot of rumbling going on as to what kind of money or what kind of company comes in at that level. But what's difficult here is that I think the reality is that we've pushed for legalization. So now it's open to everyone and it's kind of in their own right that these larger companies come in. What What are your thoughts on that? Like what I desire in my opinion is like, capitalism rules the world, fortunately or unfortunately. And I don't think cannabis is going to be any different than any other industry, unfortunately, and unless there's a major overhaul of the capitalist system, cannabis will fall under that. And it's, I, I mean, what can you say about it? The whole world is, is in this place. It's just what it is. Money rules the world. 
when money seems to be held in the hands of a select group and that's how it seems going out sure and that's not exactly like the feel-good thing that gets us all to sleep at night but it's the reality and when we're sitting in this market where analysts are predicting billions of dollars of growth in the next couple of years of course you're going to be attracting these big guys and it just can't stay small anymore. You can't really stay behind when a newly emerging market is setting off. Yeah, if there's not money to be made, it doesn't move forward, unfortunately. And there was always money to be made. And many of my you know, friends who have all been in this market, black, gray, whatever, I mean, there, it was always a monopoly. It was always like big business. It was always these things. It's just shifted from whose hands the money is in now. It was never like, you know, yeah, there might have been growers and they sold to somebody who then sold to the, you know, larger black market conglomerate, whatever you want to call that. But, you know, the, the, the money was concentrated in the hands of few the big money. So now it's just concentrated in to other people's hands. Ah, so it's almost like there's this morning of loss of control over a very large industry from the hands of the people in the black or the gray market to now the global market where nearly everything else in our lives is traded or sold or consumed. Yeah. Truly this industry is so interesting in the way that people feel so much ownership over it. I'm, you know, like, I don't understand, mind your own business. If someone wants to sell out, let them sell out. If you don't want to support them because they sold out, don't support them. But like, why this like vitriol and all of these things, I don't understand. I mean, look, it would be amazing if this system was set up in such a way that small businesses could thrive and large businesses could thrive. And it would be amazing if everybody had food on the table and kids had breakfast every day before school. Like there are so many problems with the economy and all of these things and cannabis is not perfect like the industry is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and it's it's challenging but you know there is a reality and i guess my choice is deal with the reality and figure out where i want to play in that reality versus it shouldn't be like this everyone should be able to have their own farm and sell to who they want to and where they want to in these stores, whatever it is. I mean, yeah, that would be awesome. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, your choice is, do you want to be in this industry or not? And I think it's particularly difficult for people who had had success in the black market to transition because the rules are different. Things are different. The things that are valued are different. And it's, you know, they've gone from making significant dollars to like, hey, do you want to be our head grower and this is your salary versus whatever cash they were bringing in on their, you know, um, whatever they were doing. So I get it. It's it's a shift for sure. And I feel blessed to be in the position that I'm in and feel blessed that I can do business the right way and that I can, um, you know, bring the right values to the table, but I, I'm not going to walk away from the industry because there are, you know, bad seeds or I don't like the game. One of the reasons we wanted to speak to you specifically is that you're a female CEO of a massive company in an emerging and super challenging market. 
And you keep referring to it as a game, which really resonates with me massively from my business background and being young and female in a room full of, well, people that aren't exactly that. And sometimes though, the realities are that the systems that you're in, you're gonna have to play along with so that like for me personally, I can get to the top and make the positive changes that I wanna make. And if you don't do that, that sometimes it really feels like you're just not going to have a shot at it. I think the one thing that people have to understand is this is a capital intensive industry for a variety of reasons, including that the regulatory environment isn't set. So you could spend a lot of money on something and then it turns out that that's not going to meet regulation and you need to rebuild it. So there's a lot of capital required to be in this business. And that does mean that you're having to raise money, figure out all of that, which is not in everybody's ballywick for sure. So I get again, where this can be frustrating for people who got it from the gray or black market. And this world seems foreign. And I think it's really important just to, you know, sometimes find an opportunity. Maybe it's not at the level you're thinking of yet, but by getting your foot in the door and starting to learn the language of Um, finance and capital markets and understand the nature of how the industry works, it just will benefit you in whatever your future endeavors will be. Agreed. It's always beneficial to reach out to somebody who's worked in it before. If you've already worked in it, find people that are doing it successfully that you respect. Um, I've found a lot of value in talking to people that are outside of the market that I'm in and in a market that's been around for a little bit. But moving on, so you're our neighbors to the north. Are there any concerns with our current administration being what it is and any potential effects on your market or ability to engage with the U.S. market? We're all super nervous about it. But at this point in time, we only do business in Canada. So that, you know, seems to be okay. Um, with them. But yeah, it's it's definitely nerve wracking for sure. Sure. But what I think is worrisome for us here is that there's a fear that any day the feds are just going to come in and shut it all down. And not only is that detrimental to our businesses, I think for a lot of us, cannabis is an integral part of our lives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I've been like almost a daily cannabis user since I was 15 years old. So I love it. (laughs) I believe in it. And I believe the world is a better place with cannabis in it. And so, you know, it's a weird thing for me, I guess I've had the privilege of not, you know, living in fear around my cannabis use, even though it's been illegal. Like, it's just been around me always and I feel blessed for that. So I agree the timing is all very interesting as this happens along with the world being out of whack completely. And I think we all hope that this, you know, move towards legalization and the ending of prohibition can really help heal a lot of what's going on in the world, but it's uh, definitely a lot of stress right now as we get to that point. So tell me a little bit about the products that 48 North is putting into the market. Yeah, 48 North is, you know, our brand, like our brand. And that to us right now has been our premium flower um, and pre-rolls because that's all we're allowed to sell in the Canadian market other than some limited extracts. But we will be moving into vape and a sublingual nanospray and we 
uh, licensed two of those out of the U.S. because we just thought they were great products, great people, great knowledge, know-how. They've done the 10,000 hours of figuring out the right formulations and manufacturing techniques. So Mother and Clone out of Colorado is beautiful sublingual nano spray with 60-second onset. Um, we're really excited to launch that. And then with Avitas, our small batch, single strain, um, full spectrum vape. So those we will launch as soon as we are allowed to do so in Canada. <laughs> Always waiting. So when is that? Yeah, so it's October um, this year. They are become legal, but then there's a 60 day process and I wouldn't imagine seeing anything on shelves until the new year. Thank you again to Allison for her time and insight. To learn more about 48 North as a company, you can find them online at 48nrth.com. So it's 48 North without the O or on Instagram with that same handle without the dot com. Stay tuned because coming up next is our music segment. This episode, our ethnomusicologist Danielle is going to take you on a musical history tour of the political and cultural movements within cannabis. Hello everyone, this is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. So we're continuing with part two of our cannabis feature. And for this segment, we're looking at another musical genre that has been drastically influenced and in many ways formed by the communal use of cannabis. For part one, we looked at how early American jazz and blues musicians understood and utilized cannabis as a vehicle for expansive creativity and how its prevalent use amongst black musicians ignited the racist propaganda that led to an all-out war on cannabis. Part two takes a look at another global music genre that was socially and sonically formed by cannabis use. I'm talking about reggae music from Jamaica. Reggae is a music style that emerged in the late 1960s and was strongly influenced by traditional Caribbean folk music styles such as mento and calypso, as well as American jazz, rhythm and blues, and soul. The genre has become synonymous with the Rastafari movement, an Afrocentric religious and social movement developed in Jamaica in the 1930s amongst impoverished and socially disenfranchised Black Jamaican communities. But how did the ritual music of a new spiritual movement become a global phenomenon associated with cannabis? Well, like much of the music we've discussed so far in Sorceress, the story begins with colonialism and liberation. No matter your age, race, religion, or country of origin, chances are you've heard of reggae and can identify its sound and its most iconic artist. I'm talking, of course, about Bob Marley, whose music and persona became internationally popular throughout the 1970s, putting reggae music on the worldwide map. However, most people throughout the world who are familiar with reggae, or even consider themselves fans of the music, do not necessarily know the heritage and history of the music's politics and spirituality. So let's get into it. Jamaica only gained independence from its colonizer, Great Britain, in 1962. Before that, Black Jamaicans were considered second-class citizens and the economic, political, social, and religious structures were rooted in the country's legacy of slavery. A century after slavery was abolished in 1833, Black Jamaicans began to formulate a new socio-religious movement that mixed 
colonial Christianity with issues of pan-Africanism and anti-colonial resistance. This foundational influence of colonial Christianity can most notably be seen in Rasta's monotheistic belief in a single god, referred to as Jah. As was common in colonized nations built on slavery, Jamaicans expanded and evolved their Christian religious structure in order to interpret their specific social and political needs and to empower their people. Starting in the 1930s, Black Jamaican culture was greatly inspired by other Black liberation movements within the African diaspora. Central among them was the Back to Africa movement promoted by Black nationalist figures like Jamaican-born American Marcus Garvey. In fact, the common Rasta phrase and popular Bob Marley song, One Love, was coined by Marcus Garvey in a speech to refer to the unity and love of Black people. The other central influence of Rastafari comes from the East African country of Ethiopia. If you listened to our coffee episode where I discussed Ethio jazz, you might recall that the emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, was of significant importance to the Rastafari movement. Many of Jamaica's Christian clergymen in the early 1930s claimed that Selassie was the black messiah that they believed was prophesied in the Bible. This belief was shared throughout the African diaspora, resulting in many black nations to rise up in anti-colonial resistance and identify themselves as Ethiopian. Now, the predominant beliefs that informed Rastafari were practiced at communal meetings known as groundations. These meetings are typified by ritual music, chanting, political discussions, and the communal smoking of cannabis, also known as herb, ganja, or sensimilia. In addition to smoking it, Rastas also ingest cannabis in a tea, as a spice in cooking, and as ingredient in medicine. They regard it as being inherently spiritual and having healing properties, and claim that it cultivates a form of personal introspection that allows the smoker to discover their inner divinity, or what Rastas refer to as the I and I consciousness. The ritual music that was played during these meetings was based in African drums and rhythms that were transplanted to the Caribbean through slavery and helped to form the foundation of reggae and its predecessing genres, rocksteady and ska. Ska was a music style that was developed by young Jamaicans in the 1950s and was the precursor to rocksteady and later reggae. Ska was notable for its jazz-influenced horn riffs, and by the early 1960s, ska became the premier music genre amongst young people who were seeking a soundscape to match their new post-colonial identity as independent Jamaicans. Ska then evolved into Rocksteady around the year 1966. Rocksteady was a musical genre that was slower than ska with less prominent horns. And it was this iteration of Jamaican pop music that would give way to reggae music in 1968. As a new musical style, reggae slowed the tempo down of Rocksteady even further and was led by drum and bass. Its sound is characterized by offbeat rhythms, staccato or choppy chords, and vocals sung in Jamaican patois, a Creole language that's a mix of African dialects and British English which was developed in the 17th century when enslaved Africans were exposed to the English spoken by the slaveholders. Unlike Rocksteady or Ska, early reggae lyrics usually related to local news, social gossip, and political commentary. One of the more prominent themes in reggae music was the genre's deep connection to Rastafari, 
which was further emboldened as a political movement by the American-led Black Power movement. And one of the main ways reggae music spread the socio-spiritual message of Rastafari was to promote the use of cannabis in both the lyrical content of its songs and the public personas and stage performances of its musicians, who frequently spoke about the healing properties of cannabis and freely smoked it on stage during performances. By 1973, Bob Marley and the Wailers began touring Europe and the US, and the Western world soon learned smoking cannabis was the principal spiritual practice of Rastafari. Since the late 1960s, reggae music has exemplified the sound culture of Jamaica and the Jamaican diaspora. And while reggae has fallen prey to the global flows of commercialization and commodity fetish, as we often see on college campuses where dorm rooms and frat houses are decorated with posters of Bob Marley, or at music festivals where the traditional Rasta hairstyle of dreadlocks are proudly adorned by people from every corner of the world, regardless of their race or spiritual practice. The roots of reggae are undeniable. Reggae is rooted in both a socio-spiritual movement that fused anti-colonial resistance with black liberation politics and a sonic structure that fused African-derived Caribbean folk with the freedom sounds of black jazz, R&B, and soul. Just as many African-American jazz musicians praise the herb for cultivating a deeper connectivity to the music and the ability to improvise, Rastas praise the herb for cultivating a deeper sense of spirituality and the ability to connect with jaw. Both of these sound cultures, developing simultaneously within different areas of the African diaspora, have gone on to shape the global music industry by prioritizing cannabis as an ingredient that stimulates creativity and expands communication. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, Sorceress fans, stay curious.